0: Heads up, today's episode will include discussions of sexual abuse. This is
1: Mosaic.
0: Mosaic.
1: This is Mosaic.
0: Mosaic. The LDS Church exists as both an institution and as a personal faith. The institutional LDS Church has a corporate structure with vast resources, a legal team, subsidiaries, the public relations team. But for most church members, Mormonism is experienced as a private, personal way of understanding the world and their place in it. McKenna Denson's story disrupts and complicates the church as an institution and in the personal faith of church members. The allegation that a sister missionary was raped by her MTC president at the MTC, does not fit nicely into the overall narrative anybody in the church wants to take into their Mormon reality. But like the shadow of a two hour recording of a session of General Conference, there is a two hour plus audio recording in which that former MTC president, Joseph Bishop, can be heard disclosing years of sexual misconduct while he was a respected church leader.
2: You would be the Harvey Weinstein of the Mormon church. True? I would be. Yes, you would be.
0: Yeah, be. The facts of this story were introduced in greater detail in the previous episode of this series, in the context of a larger culture of obedience within Mormonism. So how has the church responded to this story? How has the institution responded? And what kind of impact has it had on the individual faith of church members? Of course, the first Mormon whose faith was affected by McKenna Denson's story was McKenna Denson.
2: And for me, uh, the gospel gave me hope. It gave me strength. It gave me safety and security. And the church represented a safe family life, which is something I would never had. It represented a conduit to the Lord, which I never had.
0: So, what's left of your, what's left of your um, relationship to God? Today on Mosaic, Mormon Me Too Part Two, the Church responds. I'm Derek Clements.
3: The way that they handled it, I think, suggests that they are more interested in protecting their good name than they are in victims, and I think, unfortunately, that's always been the case. The institutions, in general, are designed to protect themselves over individuals, and I think in in this way, the church is no different than any other organization. I don't want this to be a 24-hour news cycle, I want this to be real change, and
2: we need to make the church take accountability for the things that they've done.
4: I mean, they've screwed up for the last 30 years on this case. Since McKenna's press conference, survivors and victims of abuse or assault, um, they are very, what we call, triggered. They're very upset, you know, it's, it's really shaken everybody to their core. I mean, it shook me to my core, really.
0: In the previous episode of this series, we talked about one of the ways that the institutional church responded to McKenna's story, which was to open up its private records to a lawyer hired by the church who compiled a dossier listing potentially embarrassing personal details from McKenna's life, a move that has been understood as an attempt to discredit McKenna or possibly to scare others who might speak out into silence. But that is just one part of how the institution responded to this story. There was also its official public relations response in the form of a statement, and then an updated statement a few days later. As more details started to become public, the church could also be seen reacting in real time in ways that rippled throughout various church-owned channels and affiliate properties. Like Deseret Book, the church-owned bookstore. Yeah, that was wild. So That's Lindsay Hansen-Park, executive director of Sunstone and host of the Year of Polygamy podcast.
3: I think it was like within 12 hours of the story breaking, when we were trying to learn about Joseph Bishop, you could Google him and you could see, it. He, I think he had two or three books, titles at Desert Book. One of them was How to Be a Good Missionary. And within, I think, 12 or 24 hours, something crazy fast, all of a sudden... <laughs> His name, you can't search it anymore. And now if you go to Desert Book, it's unsearchable. They completely scrubbed his stuff. And again, are we getting rid of his books because he's a perpetrator? Or are we getting rid of his books because we want to ignore any complicity we have in the situation? And unfortunately, I think it's it's the latter.
0: One thing that stood out to me is a discrepancy between the headlines of a couple of stories. So in Salt Lake, there's kind of two major newspapers. The Deseret News is owned by the church, and it came out with a story about Joseph Bishop before the Salt Lake Tribune did, but the Salt Lake Tribune is is not um, owned by the church. So March 20th, the Deseret News story is headlined, Woman Levels Accusations Against Former MTC President. And then the next day is when um, the Salt Lake Tribune came out with a story and their headline was, former missionary training center president admits to asking a young missionary to expose her breasts in the 80s, BYU police say. Is there anything that you notice about those headlines?
3: Yeah, it's it's where they put the crux of responsibility, right? So with the Desert News headline, it's sort of this victim blaming narrative where This woman who levels these accusations now has to be held accountable. We have to put her on trial to see if she's credible or not. The Salt Lake Tribune headline um, doesn't expect the victim to have to defend herself in the headline. It says, what is true, that the MTC president admits to doing A, B, and C. The framing is really, really important here
0: But aside from Deseret Book or the Deseret News, the most obvious, straightforward public response to this story from the church could be found in these two official statements issued March 20th and March 23rd, 2018.
3: The LDS church released a lengthy statement saying these allegations are very serious and deeply disturbing.
4: If the allegations of sexual assault are true, it will be a tragic betrayal of
3: our standards and result in actions by the church to formally discipline any member who is guilty of such... Behavior. This woman also says she told her church leaders about the abuse more than 30 years ago, right when she got home from her LDS mission, but the church has no record of that.
4: Now the church has stated that they cannot take the place of legal action, but they take the matter very seriously of the
3: church's entire statement as well as the entire recording on Fox13now.com.
0: I'm going to read part of this statement from the church. It says, quote, This matter was brought to the attention of the church in 2010 when this former church member, who served briefly as a missionary in 1984, told leaders of the Pleasant Grove, Utah West stake that she had been sexually assaulted by the president of the Provo Missionary Training Center, Joseph Bishop, 25 years earlier. The statement also says that the church referred the allegations to Joseph Bishop's local church leaders, but, quote, "...those leaders met with Mr. Bishop, who denied the allegations. Unable to verify the allegations, they did not impose any formal church discipline on Mr. Bishop at that time."
3: So, I think there's a few things going on with this.
0: I discussed the church's statement with Lindsey Hansen Park who, in her work studying Mormon polygamy throughout history and across different groups of Mormonism, has gained an historical perspective on church public relations. She described the church's statement in McKenna's case as disappointing.
3: It was a disappointing statement because what they did is they dropped a few coded words in there, coded language.
0: Like describing McKenna as this former church member who served briefly as a missionary.
3: There we go. So we have a few things. Former church member. So that signals to all LDS people that she's no longer a member, so we don't have to pay attention to her. I see this rhetoric throughout Mormonism, whether it's the FLDS with Warren Justice group or it's the LDS. We have apostate rhetoric and apostate rhetoric is meant to protect the members of the church and to keep them faithful. So anything that is less than faithful is labeled apostate. And the mechanism of that is to allow uh, those who leave for often very legitimate reasons to not be paid attention to. I think that that statement was designed to say, nothing to see here, LDS people. It's just another anti-Mormon grinding an axe against the church. The second thing was... Uh, we want to also s- show that th- perhaps she was only a missionary for a short time. And what that suggests is she came home early, probably for something sinful. Now, again, it's very subtle. It's uh, polite. So so someone could say, oh, Lindsay, you're reading way too much into that. They would never say that. But uh, I think that that is deliberately what they did. And, and I say this as someone who has seen uh, the church and the way that they've handled publicity for now the last two centuries.
0: The church's statement obfuscates and redirects McKenna's story in other ways as it goes on. Quote, the church as a religious organization does not have the investigative tools available to law enforcement agencies, nor can the church substitute for the courts in adjudicating legal claims. The church has great faith in the judicial system to determine the truth of these claims. That faith may be misplaced. According to Rain, the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, out of every thousand rapes, 994 perpetrators walk free. And about two out of every three rapes aren't reported to the police at all. And what about the church's internal procedures? When the allegations were disclosed to Joseph Bishop's local leaders, why was no church disciplinary action taken? The church's statement includes a sentence that might shed some light on that. It says, quote, not surprisingly, the stories, timelines, and recollections of those involved are dramatically different. I asked Lindsay about that sentence.
3: Well, it's not untrue. I mean, the stories are dramatically different, but I think it's dishonest. I think something can be true and dishonest at the same time. The unfortunate thing for me is I had sort of a front row seat to this story from behind the scenes. I talked, I was in contact with um, McKenna. I was in contact with our daughter. I was in contact with people involved in this case. And I got to see in real time what I believe the church was trying to do was, you know, sort of whitewash this. So when they came out with this statement, we already knew that the church had known about this. We already knew that they knew other victims um, And so it was disappointing that they came out with that statement. And then when, of course, more evidence came forward and they were forced to acknowledge it, it it was, it was just – I have nothing else to say other than it was really disappointing because I do have a love for Mormonism and I do have a love for the church. And the way they handled this and the way that they've handled this and other uh, stories like this is, I believe, morally wrong.
0: The church updated their statement um, a few days after the story broke and more details. And they had a little bit stronger language. They said we share the anger and distress church members and others feel to learn of incidents where those entrusted with sacred responsibilities violate God's commandments and harm others. And then in that second statement, it also acknowledges multiple um, women, which they had not acknowledged in the first statement.
3: Yeah, and and they were forced to do that because, you know, the evidence came out that there were more women in the desert news that even reported on a second victim. So I just, the way that they handled it, I think, suggests that they are more interested in protecting their good name than they are in victims. And I think, unfortunately, that's always been the case. The institutions in general are designed to protect themselves over individuals And I think in in this way, the church is no different than any other organization.
0: We're going to spend some time now exploring in more depth that phrase in the church's first public statement, where it described McKenna as this former church member who served briefly as a missionary. Why would McKenna's church membership status be a relevant fact to include, but not the fact that a high-ranking church leader admitted, on tape, to predatory sexual behavior? that police records back up allegations of abuse, and that a woman, regardless of her church membership status, had alleged that he raped her. Those are the facts that should have been the focus of this news release. But McKenna's relationship to the church actually is relevant to her story, just not in the way the church was telling it. It's relevant because when a spiritual leader turns out to be a sexual abuser, there are spiritual ramifications to that abuse that are important to consider. In 2008, scholars Kenneth L. Pargament Nicole A. Murray Swank, and Annette Mahoney studied this concept in a paper titled, The Spiritual Dimension of Clergy Abuse and Its Impact on Survivors. In the paper, the authors define spirituality as, quote, A search for the sacred, a process of discovery, conservation, and transformation that evolves over the lifespan. The spiritual dimension of McKenna's story was something she can be heard stating quite succinctly on the original recording with Joseph Bishop.
4: What you did to me destroyed my faith and testimony in
2: priesthood leaders and in the church. Wow. I have carried this and it has destroyed my life.
0: So when I sat down with McKenna, one of the things I was most interested in hearing her explain was how her experiences as a missionary in the MTC impacted her faith, and how her faith in the LDS Church got started in the first place.
2: I left home when I was 15, got a little apartment, and went to high school, and worked at the hospital. Um, would ride my bike at five thirty in the morning to the high, to the uh, to the hospital, get off work, go to school, come back and finish up. Um, I had this little apartment with hardwood floors. I had no bed. I had no furniture, but I was happy because I was free. Um, I met some kids at the high school in this critical issues class where we discussed topics like abortion and capital punishment and. Um, what it takes to get to the top and what would you do to become a, you know, successful business person. And there was a group of kids in there that uh, the teacher would pick on. I thought at the time he was picking on them. I understand now um, and shortly after that, really, that these kids wouldn't back down. So it made the conversation very entertaining. Um, I didn't find it particularly entertaining because these kids had really strong values. They knew exactly where they stood on abortion, on capital punishment, and they had reasons to back it up. It made me very curious. So I got to know those kids and they were all Mormon. I didn't even know what Mormons were. I'd never even heard that word. And where was this? In Reno.
0: In Reno. Okay. Mm -hmm. Wow. So um, what was it about the church that was attractive to you?
2: The church um, stood for families and family values, something that my family never had. Um, my stepfather, when I was a little girl, I wanted to go to church with, um, a friend from school. And my stepfather said, there is no God. I am God. And that, <laughs> that always rubbed me the wrong way. So when I found this group of, of kids my age in high school that had, they were the epitome of what I wanted to be. Um, the Church represented a safe family life, which is something I'd never had. It represented a conduit to the Lord, which I never had um, the people that I met the the regular everyday l d s person I thought were just amazing, so I wanted what they had that safety, that joy, that peace in my life.
0: Do you remember your baptism day?
2: I do. It was my sixteenth birthday. yeah,
0: what do you remember about that day
2: um It was an amazing day. The chapel was full. There were a lot of people there. I think in our ward, and I didn't recognize this at the time, but I think in our ward, people were kind of pulling for me. Um, I think people in the ward were supportive, wanting to help me break free of whatever my, my childhood was. So that was really full. It was really an amazing experience. Can we talk about prior to my baptism? Yes. Mm -hmm. So I had an experience prior to my baptism that gave me great pause. Mm. Um, When I was interviewed for baptism, okay, so there's a guy named Bart Oates. Okay. Who played football for BYU, and he was one of my missionaries. Great guy. Huge guy. Great guy. Um, Before my baptism, I met with, I know it wasn't the bishop, and I don't believe it was one of the bishopric. I think it was the ward mission leader. And when he interviewed me for baptism, I was 15 years old. Um, he knew about my my background with my um, abusive stepfather, um, but he asked me questions about masturbation, and I, I didn't know what that meant. I didn't. I'd never heard that word. Um, but he asked me if I liked what my stepfather did to me. Did I enjoy it? And it. Really, it really gave me pause, made me kind of wonder, wait a minute. First of all, am I worthy to be baptized? Am I okay to be baptized? Does the Lord love me? Um, And then on the other hand, it made me so uncomfortable that made me wonder if I wanted to be a part of that church.
0: So he was somebody in the ward locally and he's sitting down with you to to see if you were... Worthy. Worthy of baptism. baptism, Okay. Huh. So... It gave you pause. Did you, How long was that pause? Like, did, Was there a moment that you were like, maybe I don't want to get baptized, and this is a little strange?
2: I thought it was a little strange, but I was at the same time desperate for mm-hmm. that love and joy and peace that I had been feeling um, in the gospel. So I wasn't going to let that go. But I did wonder, and I've wondered since then. Yeah.
0: Was that your first time being... In an interview, like in a, in a closed room with a with a male church leader. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, because I wouldn't yeah. be any other time before that.
2: Mm-mm. No, and and the missionaries were amazing, and the family that um, had me had my lessons at their home. They were all amazing, and I'd never had. I I didn't have a problem talking about my abuse. Um, I had already been to the police about it, but the statute of limitations had expired. So yeah. With your stepfather? Yes. Uh-huh. Concerning my stepfather. Um, but yeah, that was the first time I had a one on one interview. Huh. So I didn't know if that was normal. Yeah. I didn't know if that was, you know, a message from God saying, you're not worthy. Yeah. I didn't know what that was. At that time in my life, Derek, I thought that. Every man that held the priesthood was a direct conduit to God. So if he's asking me questions, um, the Lord is asking me
0: Hmm.
2: if that makes sense. Yeah.
0: So then let's see, I guess, so then you go to the MTC.
2: Then I go to the MTC (laughs) and there I was. And
0: there you were. What, what was, what was running through your mind the first day you got there?
2: It was overwhelming to me. there were probably 1,200 missionaries there, and families, and everybody was everywhere, and it was um, a lot of energy, it was very exciting, it was really fun. There were several missionaries who came without family, for whatever reason, who knows? Maybe they lived far away, or um, they were the only member, like in my case, I was the only member in my family. so.
0: So tell me more about, about your mentality there. Like, what what did you hope for? As you looked ahead at the next eight, 18 months, um, what did you imagine your mission to be?
2: I imagined that I would meet some great companions and that I would convert people to the gospel and share the same joy and peace and safety that I finally found in the church. hmm
0: was there a particular aspect of the church that you were most excited to share with people? Or was there a, maybe... Hope. A, hope? Yeah, okay, absolutely hope. Yeah. yeah.
2: Well, you know, I think a lot of people, um, whether they come from an LDS family or, con- or they're a convert, there are parts of the gospel that touch their heart and move them in a way that is different from others. And for me, uh, the gospel gave me hope. It gave me strength, it gave me safety and security, and it gave me this idea that my life could be mine. I could choose uh, not only the way I live it, but who I accept into my life. Mm -hmm. And I didn't didn't have to have people like my family in it. Mm -hmm. And I could choose healthy, happy, wholesome people. Mm
0: -hmm. Was there a particular teaching that you felt especially converted to?
2: You know, at the time, um, the doctrine of family um, families are forever um, the idea that God is love and that we can be love and that it's um, it's a state of being it's not just a verb Yeah. Okay. okay. when I went to the MTC I went with the idea and the conviction that my life was going to be good, that my life was no longer going to be subject to my childhood, my past. Um, After Joseph Bishop groomed and raped me in the MTC, that vanished. Um, I struggled, truly struggled with self-esteem and whether or not the Lord really loved me and if I had any value whatsoever. So I walked away from really good, healthy LDS, people hmm. and just walked away. Hmm. Never said a word,
0: just walked away. Hmm. In and what way? Walked away from the church or walked, no, or just walked, walked away, away from, from relationships okay, got it. that got I it. had built. Mm-hmm.
2: I felt like I did not deserve those people because there was something hmm. wrong with me.
0: How did it impact your mission from that time going forward?
2: It changed everything about me. Um, I... No longer really wanted to go on a mission. I no longer believed in what I was doing. But at the same time, I wanted to. Um, I tried to compartmentalize what had happened. Um, Being raped by the mission president at the MTC was so far removed from my reality or thought process that when that happened, I had to try to put it in a box and try to close the lid and lock it up. and, And I never could. I never could. I still can't. So I tried to compartmentalize it and go on my mission, and then I had a meltdown—something uh, I'd never had. Mm-hmm. I didn't understand the anxiety attack I was having. I was in a threesome with two other sister missionaries. You had
0: two companions, yeah. Two. I had
2: two companions, partners, yeah. So there mm-hmm. were three of us, and we were living with a single woman mm-hmm. in Arlington, mm-hmm. Virginia, in a very tall apartment building. Yeah, and I started. What I know now is, is panicking. I started having a panic attack, feeling anxious, and I um, couldn't get control of my emotions. Yeah. So I, we were all getting ready for bed, and I told the sisters that I left my camera in the car, and I hauled ass out of that apartment and got in the elevator, went down, went out into the parking lot, started to walk around, um, trying to get control and try to understand what was happening to me. And I and I couldn't. And they came out to the parking lot and found me. And and I just said someone tried to rape me. So they called the mission president, and I was sent to Provo. Hmm.
0: Okay, you were sent to Provo as a missionary, like like to I be was, a missionary in Provo. No, no,
2: I was sent to get counseling.
0: Okay. Was the counseling that you received a positive experience?
2: It was the worst counseling experience I have ever had. Okay, ever had. The man they sent me to um, was arrogant and and pompous. We spent the entire hour um, talking about him. And then he kept telling me, you have a secret, you have a secret. And even at that time, I said, damn right I do, and I am not telling you. I didn't like him. He was just a jerk. And he was very cold and removed. No, he... He, I do not believe he knew how to work with
0: trauma survivors. You had this this memory of being raped by Joseph Bishop in the MTC. How did it affect your relationship to the church itself, being active, going to church?
2: You know, that's a really good question, Derek. Um, I, for years, actually, right up until December of 2017, when I interviewed Joseph Bishop, I spent decades trying to rationalize the idea that he was just one person and that it didn't really affect the church. It did affect my testimony. It, it affected everything to do with priesthood leaders. And anytime a priesthood leader did something a little bit off, it was a huge off to me because I was set up to, to be angry. Um, I on and off, for three decades, um, would go to church when my children were little and I was a single mom, I would take them, but I would tell the Bishop I'm not active. I didn't explain why always there were times when I did, but not all the time, but I felt like that, um, having the church in our life was a healthy thing, a good thing. The principles of the gospel were a good thing. Um, But I never could quite reconcile. And then when I interviewed Joseph Bishop and I learned that the church had covered it up, not only did the church know um, that he was a sex addict and a sexual predator, they covered it up and they promoted him and gave him an entire playground of women. So, yeah, no, I have no respect for the church now.
0: And that's recent, though, that's since your conversation with, Yes. Me. So up until that point, you felt like, would you say the church is true? Would that be a phrase that would? Come yeah, up? that's
2: a, that's a definite phrase that comes to mind. Yeah. Um, I believed that the gospel was true. Uh-huh. I believed the Book of Mormon. I believed um in temple marriages. I believed in the temple. I don't anymore. I don't believe any of that anymore. Um, Here's what I do believe, though, Derek. I believe that there are millions of good LDS people, members of the church, just trying to be better parents, better husbands, better wives, better neighbors, um, make their communities better. That's what I believe. Um, There are doctrines in the church that have benefited my life, and I don't regret any of those but as far as the church itself goes. Learning from Joseph Bishop in his own words that he had confessed all of his sexual sins to Elder Wells when he was mission president in Argentina and learning that even with that knowledge he was promoted to the MTC president um, was such a slap in the face, such a slap in the face. Um, If the church had done the right thing Back when they, even if that was the first time they learned of his indiscretions, for lack of a more generic term, if they had excommunicated him, he wouldn't have been at the MTC to assault me, and this other sister missionary who was already traumatized. How many others, I can't comment, but the fact that he was never disciplined means the church, knowing, promoted that behavior. And if that's the wrong message, then they need to go back and fix it publicly, very, very publicly, so that the other members of the church can heal as well, and other survivors, not just of Joseph Bishop. But the church, if they were to take accountability and say, you know what, we have made a mistake, we have treated everything all these years the same way, and things are changing, and we are accountable, and we're going to be accountable, I think they would see tremendous positive response.
0: So what's left of your, kind of bringing it full circle to this, what's left of your um, relationship to God?
2: I don't know that there is a God yet. Yeah, I, I have a hope. Um, I don't pray. I don't ask for spiritual guidance. I don't trust that at this point in my life. Um, but this is all really new. So it's like my entire foundation, which was the gospel of Jesus Christ, has been like a rug pulled right out from under me and that rug was sitting on a very fragile shelf and i'm now falling in the ocean i haven't hit the ocean yet i'm still in free fall but when i get to that point i i am confident that whatever faith i find will look nothing like the gospel at least in terms of priesthood leaders and and thinking that they're better than anyone else i know there are leaders of other congregations of other types of churches that I respect and admire. Doesn't mean that they're um, perfect either, but they don't profess to be, and nor do they say, "Do what we tell you," or "You're not a you're not a good, worthy member." So I don't know when I when I reach that point, I think I'll know it. But I have a new calling in life now, a new purpose, and it um, it's fortifying and I like it, and I'm ready. I'm ready to move forward
0: with it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for talking. I really appreciate My it. My pleasure. McKenna. Thank um, you. I just want to reiterate, I believe you. Thank and, you. Uh, I I wish you the best.
2: Thank you. I appreciate that.
0: Okay. Again, Lindsay Hansen-Park.
3: I have talked to hundreds of women who have left the church because they were victimized by a ward member, abused by their bishop, sexually molested by a ward member or a bishop, groomed by their bishop to be a plural wife. This stuff is way more common than we think, and people will leave the church over that because of course they would. Of course they could lose faith in something like that.
0: Another person I met while reporting this story is Nicole Jensen.
4: I'm a single mom. I have four kids. I'm Mormon, and I have been an advocate for abuse survivors for a long time.
0: Nicole runs the blog BreakingAbuse.org and has organized support groups online.
4: For LDS men and women, and it's funny, the men's group only has like 10 men in it, and the women's group has over 200 Women.
0: She said that when she started the groups, there already were lots of other support groups out there for survivors.
4: But I wanted a place where women and men could come and heal with the gospel, where they could work on the challenging aspect of reconciling what happened to them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because that's a very difficult thing. Nobody's talking about it in the church. So, you know, I created a place where they could do that.
0: Nicole herself is a survivor of abuse.
4: My older brother was really my primary abuser, um, but my mom was a part of that as well.
0: As a child, she was sexually abused by her older brother.
4: I was really scared of this guy. I'd grown up being afraid of this guy. He was very physically abusive um, as well, and so that kind of intensified and really didn't end until until he moved out.
0: She grew up, got married, had four children, and then came to a turning point in her life.
4: When one of my brother's sons tried to molest my daughter, and we had always been very conscientious about how we taught our children, um, that their bodies belong to them, what appropriate boundaries are, and then to really never, ever overreact. In fact, we tried to underreact so that they could approach us. And they wouldn't have to feel afraid. And she was able to do that. And she came and, you know, she told us what happened. And, um, you know, I called my parents at that point because my brother was actually in prison for federal perjury charges. Um, And when I told them what my daughter had said, and she was three, you know, um, my mom said, well, I talked to him, the nephew, and we believe him. And I said, okay. And I hung up. And I mean, she's a licensed clinical social worker. And the law clearly says, you know, if they're suspect of child abuse or neglect, you're supposed to report it. And she was just going to continue that cycle of deny, deny, deny. Let's just pretend nothing happened. And I just wasn't going to have that. And so, you know, I hung up on her. I called and reported it. My daughter told the same story a few times. So anyway, so from that point forward. My daughter, she's about 12 now, so she was three. So, you know, life continued to be difficult. At my core, I'm about honesty. You know, I just, I don't, I, I tell it how it is. I express how I feel, and it, and it didn't work very well. And that was very hard for my husband. It was very difficult for his mother. It was very difficult for my mother. So our families all around us were freaking out because they all just wanted me to shut up, <laughs> you know, and I was very alone in my family. But I was determined to keep my kids safe. So weathering all of that storm and feeling very alone, you know, as things escalated, um, my mother or my marriage fell apart. You know, I found out later both of our mothers were actively working to break that up, and so. It it was a very dark time. It was very, very difficult.
0: But throughout her life, she said the LDS Church has been a source of strength and healing.
4: The gospel of Jesus Christ does not condone abuse. It was actually when I was in the Young Women's Program, when I came to an understanding that my body was mine, you know, and that it was special. I was very fortunate to have different experiences than a lot of the survivors that I've worked with that I know helped me heal more than maybe they have. There's a lot of talk right now, you know, in the media and and everywhere about bishops and their response to the chastity question. You know, for instance, when you go through the temple, you know, they bring up the law of chastity and a lot of survivors are made to feel shame that if they've been sexually abused they wonder am i tainted am i worthy and the bishop that i met with um, was my singles ward bishop and when i just started to hint at what i was even going to talk to him about he just shut it down he's like you don't need to worry about that that wasn't your fault the end
0: she said that certain mormon teachings like those about relying on Jesus as a healer, have been helpful for her.
4: So much of the time we hear about the atonement simply in the idea of you've made a mistake, you've sinned, so repent. Well, that's only a very small part of the atonement. The atonement is about Jesus Christ being there who understands the pain that we've experienced because of the sins of someone else, not because of our own sins. And to be able to turn to him for relief from from that pain. He knows how to help us heal. He can take that from us.
0: Also, she said that in the groups that she's a part of, there are certain talks given by LDS leaders that are well-known.
4: There's, you know, a talk by Elder Holland.
0: We speak even more vigorously against all forms of sexual abuse.
4: There's an ancient YouTube
1: recording of
4: Chieko Okasaki.
1: Sexual abuse is a problem for all of us, both men and women, whether we have experienced it personally or not. And there's Elder Scott's talk. Remember that predators are skillful at cultivating a public appearance of piety to mask their despicable acts.
0: But she acknowledged that these examples are part of only a small handful of times church leaders have spoken publicly and clearly about the trauma associated with sexual abuse.
4: I mean, we're relying on these very few teachings about how to handle abuse. It it just, people don't talk about it. And for myself, holy cow. When McKenna got up there and she shared her story and all of a sudden everybody was talking about it, it was this huge moment. It was a huge moment for me and I know it was a huge moment for so many other people because we've been talking about this for years trying to get the conversation going and here's a woman who dug deep and found the courage to confront this huge corporation this worldwide power and now everybody's talking about it. The Me Too movement is not the reason that I
2: sought out Joseph Bishop however The Me Too movement and the Time's Up movement is the reason I had courage to get on that plane, to fly to Arizona, and interview Joseph Bishop. It gave me the courage to understand that maybe this time, maybe this time, someone would believe me.
0: When a story like McKenna's is said out loud, some survivors respond with a resounding, me too. But others can go even deeper into silence.
4: Since McKenna's press conference, it's been very quiet. And I see that not just in, in the groups that I've established, but really everywhere. You know, survivors and victims of abuse or assault, um, they are very, what we call, triggered. They're very upset. You know, it's it's really shaken everybody to their core. I mean, it shook me to my core, really. Um, And so there isn't a lot of talk.
0: It seems like a contradiction that a movement about making voices louder can also make other voices more quiet. But to me it's just another indication that everything, even the Me Too movement itself, has a shadow. I wanted to understand that side of this story. How some voices among Mormon survivors could go quiet in response to McKenna's story being public. Nicole said that part of the reason is that Mormons went from hardly ever talking about sexual abuse in public
4: to hearing about this woman whose abuse was not only perpetrated on sacred ground at the MTC, you know, but it was covered up and, you know, all of these different uh, things about it. And so that's a really big shift. It's very shocking. One of the most um, upsetting things for me was to hear about the dossier that the church um, built against McKenna. Because one of the most painful parts of being a survivor of abuse is being believed and validated and having our pain understood and saying, you went through this and I'm so sorry and I can't imagine what that feels like. And, And now we're seeing our church you know, this beloved part of our life actively working to discredit and shame this victim. And like, I almost can't even think about it without getting a little, a little teary, you know? So that's really, um, that's difficult. That's difficult. I think, you know, in all of the years that I've been writing and talking about this, I've always tried to do it from the perspective of this happens in the church this happens in the church, you know, we need to talk about it, there are people out there, we need to talk about it, Um, and then to see the leaders of our church working so actively against it, it just felt, it was a big shift, a big shift for everybody to try and figure out what's going on, you know, to get to the place where we understand that the church is a corporation, functions like a corporation in a lot of these cases. Let's talk about how predators hide in the church. Yes. Shall we talk about that? (laughs) Sounds great. Okay. Let's talk about not just how Joseph Bishop was able to hide, but how countless predators, sexual predators, are able to hide in the church. We have a patriarchal church where men are given the priesthood, but they don't just talk about the priesthood. We hear it. It's the power of the priesthood. Sexual predators see facts and behaviors as opportunities. And so they look at this church where men are given the power of the priesthood, and they realize that if they are living and they appear to be doing all the things that they're supposed to do, they can fly under the radar and they can pursue victims undetected. So they do their home teaching. Now it's called ministering, right? But that Boxes checked. They have a temple marriage. They're a return missionary. You know, they serve in their callings and they do all the things that they're supposed to do. And so the members in the church and in the ward, we see that and we think, oh my gosh, he's a great guy. He would never do anything like that. And along comes a victim of this person who has been dying inside. And maybe that person approaches the bishop and says, this, this man did this to me. And that bishop thinks of all those boxes that have been checked. And instead of taking a step back and realizing that a victim doesn't come forward without exerting a huge amount of courage. So instead of realizing that, he looks at those boxes that have been checked and he says, there's no way. There's no way. I know this guy. I know him. Do you? Do you know him? Because They are so good at manipulating people and uh, at lying. And I think that one of the areas that is really, really hurting the church right now is men and women looking at someone and deciding whether or not they're a good person. Okay? So maybe they're looking at someone and they've decided that they're a bad person because that person has said someone has abused me. So that's one instance, or they're looking at someone deciding that they're a good person, when they're really just a wolf in sheep's clothing. I I did a Facebook video the day of McKenna's, um, of her her press conference, and oh man, some of the comments drove me crazy. Well, it was pretty exhausting, honestly, at that point, because I was still very upset about everything that had happened, but to see some of the men in particular. But then there were some women too. So coming out and just condemning this woman, they don't even know her, condemning someone who has come forward and said, this happened to me, that's ignorance. (laughs) Stop. It's just, it's hurting everybody. When people are threatened, they tend to close ranks. They tend to want to stop talking. But the truth of the gospel and the truth of life, really the universe, is that truth exists in, in the light. And if God is love and Jesus Christ is light, then talking about truth and talking about it in a way without fear and just being able to own our stories That is powerful, but when we suppress it and when we sweep it under the rug and when we tell someone not to talk about it, that's where the pain is multiplied.
0: We've talked, we've touched a little bit on how the ecclesiastical side of this story how, like you said, it it happened on sacred ground at the MTC. Mm-hmm. I'm really interested in in the spiritual impact of a story like this on survivors and just other members of the faithful that would would hear this and don't know how to. It, it shatters their concept, their paradigm, their concept of what their reality is in some ways. Right. And so, have you personally felt any kind of paradigm shift through through this with this story?
4: Yeah. Yes, I have. Um, And I never thought, I, I mean, I'd never imagined it. You know, my bishop right now is this amazing guy. He's just, he's kind and he's thoughtful. And, you know, he works really hard, you know, to be in touch and has been a great strength for me. He's also an attorney. And, you know, when the dossier came out and I was struggling so much, I went and I sat down with him and I just, I said, you know, Bishop, what is going on? You know, this is killing me. I I don't understand why the church is discrediting this woman. And he kind of went through the legal process that we're watching unfold with a lawsuit. Um, And that was my first big paradigm shift because I—and I know that I'm not alone in this. You know, for me, the church and the gospel have been one and the same my entire life. You know, I have a testimony of the church— means I have a testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, And, you know, having that conversation with him and the soul-searching that I have had to do, I really had to realize and then accept that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the corporation of the president, and it is a corporation, Okay, it is also the vehicle by which we learn the gospel of Jesus Christ, but those are two very separate things. And so that paradigm shift for me has been huge, huge. It's really helped me realize more than ever that, you know, the leaders are men. They are fallible, just like all of us are. They're going to make mistakes like all of us are. We, we all are. And, it's about what do we do with those mistakes and as i sat down with my bishop talking about everything with McKenna he said he said what should we do you know if you if you told them one thing what what do you think you would want them to do and i said i don't know i don't feel like it's my place to tell them what to do i can i can say because you're asking me let me tell you what i wish i wish they would stand up and say this happened and it was wrong, and this is what we're going to fix. That's what I wish. That's what I hope for. Um, but I don't know anymore. I don't. I don't know. You know. I think that for myself, I'm just. I'm watching. I'm watching and and praying a lot, and hoping that that this will begin a process of rooting out the evil. I never, ever imagined that I would ever face the question about staying in this church or not. That's how much I love the church. But in April, that was the question that I felt. I just, I could not understand. Because, and yet it's interesting, Elder Scott talks about the wounds of sexual abuse being so deep, And I wondered, you know, with this deep wound, and I'm seeing them shaming this woman who has been hurt. Not only was she molested as a child, she bore a child of rape, Um, and then the church exposed all of that to the world. I just thought, I can't stay. I can't stay in a church that does that. And that that was horrible to figure out, what am I gonna do about this? You know, and for me, I had to go back and I had to think about the areas of my testimony that I've had, that I know without a doubt, that I've known before April of 2018, and that got me to the point where I feel like, you know, I'm here, and I'm not, I'm not leaving. But not everybody can do that, um, and they need to be respected. Each person has their own journey that should be honored. But what I see happening when someone leaves the church is not honor. It's not respect. It's cruelty. It's shunning them and their children. Um, And honestly, I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed to see that there are men and women in the church, who I call brother and who I call sister, and to see how they are treating other people. It breaks my heart. And not everybody's like that. There are so many good people in the church, so I don't want that to be like a blanket statement. But the truth is that it's happening, and it's happening so much, and it's wrong.
0: It's hard to imagine, it's hard for me to imagine a more complex um, and confusing thing for a community, for a faith community, to address then the existence of sexual predators among the ranks of the leaders of the church.
4: I think that there is a period of grieving on a personal level, but then also on a wider level in the church, um, just like the stages of grief. You know, acceptance is part of that. Denial is part of that. And I, I believe that we are watching that. And I'm hoping that as we move through the stages of grief, we get to the point of, re- of acceptance. And then, you know, moving on, where policy changes are made. Something along the lines of putting windows in the bishop's doors, in their office, because that's such a simple thing. So I hope as we move through those stages that those are, that's what we'll see.
0: It's really interesting that, like, the church itself is going through the stages of grief that any individual would go through.
4: Right. And the question is, is how strong is that denial stage going to be? Really? I mean, is the denial going to be so strong that nothing changes? Because I don't see, I don't see that as a solution. In fact, that's a tragedy,
0: Finally today, I want to go back to that talk by former General Relief Society Presidency member Chieko Okazaki that we heard a little bit from earlier.
1: I'm indeed honored to be asked, honored to participate in this assignment, and I am greatly saddened by the fact that the information in this talk is still keenly relevant to so many members of the church today.
0: The talk is called Healing from Sexual Abuse. It was delivered at Brigham Young University in October 2002. I recommend listening to the whole talk. What I admire most about it is that it's an example of a spiritual leader ministering to wounds without seeming to have an agenda about making sure the church institution looks good in the process.
1: One man who shared his experiences of being sexually abused by his father told me, I feel all alone at church a lot of the time. In fact, I have not attended my meetings sometimes for up to a year because I cannot face the members. And then he told about his agony at sitting through a lesson in which our responsibility to forgive was presented as an absolute requirement. When he tried to suggest that sometimes it is not possible to forgive until some healing has taken place, his comment was received judgmentally and without understanding. The teacher rebuked him. And when he tried to explain his feelings, a heated debate developed. He said wistfully, I wish that I felt safe and accepted during Elder's Quorum, but every time I enter that room that I am commanded to go into, I feel as though I'm going in front of a firing squad.
0: Even though the talk was given over a decade ago, her words feel timely today.
1: I personally believe that the growing awareness of and resistance to sexual abuse is a fulfillment of the scripture, which says, there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, neither hid that shall not be known. Therefore whatsoever ye have spoken, and I would add have done, in darkness shall be heard in the light and proclaimed upon the housetops. Each survivor who tells her or his story Each individual who reports abuse, each police officer who arrests a perpetrator, each judge and jury who enforces the law, and each person who teaches children to protect themselves and to report abuse are part of fulfilling this prediction of Jesus Christ about the last days. This evil must be exposed before it can be repented of, and it must be repented of.
0: It must be repented of. That sentence could apply to McKenna Denson's story. And the call to repentance applies to church leaders, local and general, who heard McKenna's story and didn't believe it. Or who heard it and believed it, but who covered it up or dismissed it for fear of making the church seem culpable. Well, the church is culpable. Not just individual people involved who hurt McKenna, But the system itself, the church as a corporation. Because like a certain famous Mormon once said, Corporations are people, my friend. We can raise taxes on, of course they are. And in this case, the corporation that is the LDS church needs to repent and change. Just like the church can go through the same stages of grief that an individual can, as Nicole pointed out, the church can go through the same stages of repentance that an individual can. Those stages, are the same as always, confessing and forsaking. I'm still waiting for the church to make a statement that acknowledges, confesses, its role in what McKenna experienced, in what her daughter Jessica experienced. And the institution needs to look at its policies and structures and forsake the ones that perpetuate or leave room for abuse. I see no indications of repentance from the LDS church institution in McKenna's case. In fact, In response to the lawsuit McKenna filed against the church and against Joseph Bishop, the church asked a judge to dismiss the case. Despite that request, the case appears to be going forward. And after one recent decision that's already been made, it's possible the audio from Joseph Bishop's interview with BYU police may become public soon. So, What would it look like for an institution like the LDS Church to repent? Listening to Chieko Okazaki's talk makes me think of one policy the church could repent of, which I suggested to Nicole. Would one solution be to just have more women as leaders of the church?
4: Oh, gosh. I told you that was a can of worms I didn't want to open. (laughs) Okay, okay. We don't need to go there. You can even put that in. I don't care, but... (laughs)
0: In an editorial published in the Salt Lake Tribune in March, written by Sarah Hanks, Paula Baker, Nancy Ross, Olivia Michael, and Jen Brackenhull, and co-signed by more than 1,500 Mormons, some specifics of what repentance might look like are brought forward. The editorial calls for an end to sexually explicit interviews of minors, for mandatory church discipline proceedings for rape, sexual abuse, and spousal abuse, for a system to independently investigate where leaders have been abusive or mishandled claims of others' abusive actions, where members would be aware of procedures in these matters and have some recourse if those procedures weren't followed, and for church members to have a sanctioned way to report abuse to upper levels of church authority. The authors comment on McKenna Denson's story, saying, quote, We reject excuses that this was the work of one flawed man, an aberration in the system. This disclosure reflects patterns of authority figures inflicting abuse on others, and of church leaders failing to acknowledge wrongdoing, instead seeking to protect the reputation of the institution. We call on the LDS church to repent of its sins and create transparent processes where abusers and the leaders who protect them are held accountable. In calling upon the institution of the LDS Church to repent, it's important to not overlook or excuse the individuals that make up that institution, who carry out, without critical evaluation, the sins of the institution, myself included. I'm talking about individual church members who have, in little and big ways, contributed to a culture in Mormonism of idealizing and holding up Mormon leaders as figures of automatic trust. McKenna Denson's story is a call for us, individually and collectively, to repent. And one final thought for this part of the series about the church response to McKenna's story. In thinking about how to respond to abuse, one takeaway is simple, believe women. According to widely accepted research, the percentage of charges of rape and related sex crimes that are determined to be false are in the single digits. Some groups find that number as low as 2%. And that's of the already small fraction of crimes where charges are actually made in the first place. Believing women is more than just about how we react to what they say. It's about people of all genders having respect in their communities. Patriarchy, both inside the LDS Church and outside of it, privileges the voice and perspectives of men. And it hurts everybody. And McKenna Denson's story is not the only instance of patriarchy-failing women and others in Mormonism. Abuse by respected spiritual leaders and others in authority is sadly much more common. So to conclude this series, in the next installment, we're going to zoom out a bit from the details of McKenna's story to look into broader takeaways of Me Too from multiple points of view. So we were all in this cabin and, you know, telling stories, and we got to telling stories, you know, about things that were kind of scary in our lives. And I sort of started to talk about it then, but it was so scary that I just couldn't bring myself to say, you know, my grandfather abused me.
3: I can tell you it does. It happens so much um, within our church. And a lot of times it'll be within families and then per- kind of perpetuated by the church leaders themselves.
0: I've read 3,000 stories. We are doing horrendous things behind closed doors. This should never, ever happen. That episode is coming soon. But before that episode is going to be released, I'm going to release, next week, a different episode on a totally different topic. It's going to be a very special episode, and I just don't want to wait any longer before I release it. So, look for that to drop next week. Mosaic is created by me, Derek Clements, with production assistance today by Mosaic's advisor, Katie Kyle. You can subscribe to Mosaic in all the regular podcast places. And please make this show possible by making a donation or by becoming a Patreon subscriber. Patreon subscribers also get access to bonus content from the show, which will be coming very soon, I promise, but maybe after the first season ends in just a few episodes from now. For details about how you can contribute, please visit mosaicpodcast.com slash support. Thanks for listening. I'm Derek Clements. Thank you.